This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Pfizer. Breakthroughs that change patients' lives. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Dan Diamond, a national health reporter at The Post, and this is part of our ongoing series on health equity. Today's program will focus on health research. And my first guest, Dr. Eliseo Perez Estable, He's the director of the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities at the NIH. Director, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here with you today. Doctor, you lead an organization that plans, reviews, evaluates medical research, minority health research at the NIH. Give us a sense of the history around this effort. How underrepresented has minority research on the medical side been, and how are you changing that now? Of course, our history would have to date back to uh, the the country's history itself, right? Our founding, I think it is the, the history of all of the Americas. Uh, but to be, get up to date on modern, uh, we go back to the mid-1980s. Uh, Dr. Herb Nickens, uh, founder of the Office of Minority Health, um, and the initial focus uh, that was a report uh, by the Department of Health and Human Services on black and minority health. Uh, eventually that led to the 1993 uh, um, mandate to have diversity in clinical studies. Uh, the Office of Minority Health and Minority Health Research was established under the leadership of Secretary Sullivan. And subsequently in the year 2000, uh, we were legislated into a center for minority health and health disparities research as part of the National Institutes of Health had been a growing group of scientists, uh, many in uh, population science, in clinical science, and even in basic science uh, that were beginning to address sort of what are the scientific developments or the clinical developments through the lens of this uh, construct that we call uh, race or ethnicity, sort of a self-identified construct. Are there biological components? Are there behavioral components? Are there environmental ones that influence this? And this has grown exponentially really over the last 20 years. The landmark report uh, that was uh, published by the National Academy of Medicine, now National Academy of Medicine, uh, Unequal Care, highlighted the disparities existing in health care uh, by race, ethnicity, uh, and to some extent by socioeconomic status. Um, and I think this has now expanded to include other populations. Uh, and we have just learned so much across the whole NIH and across the scientific enterprise to advance this area. I'd like to focus on recent years. You joined NIMHD in 2015. Since then, you've produced a collection of resources that facilitate the conduct of research to promote health equity. Can you tell us about that? So I became director of National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities in uh, September of 2015. I followed Dr. John Ruffin, who was the founding director of the Institute and had been the prior director of the center. Um, I think I, I brought in a perspective that uh, we're a science agency. We needed to think about this from a scientific perspective and what this construct, this, this concept of we call race or ethnicity means, uh, how it interacts with social economic status or social class, how it interacts with environmental factors uh, and clinical services uh, and society in general. And uh, we created, um, I think I should say staff really worked hard to create, had already been working on what we call the science visioning perspective of how all these things could fit together. 
a research framework was published. Uh, we we uh, edited a special issue of American Journal of Public Health on this topic to sort of lay out our vision of where we think we needed to go to utilize and leverage the discovery tools that basic science have brought us uh, in an exponential way over the prior 20 years, that data science have brought us to be able to analyze and uh, consume data that had been generated from populations and society uh, to be able to not only identify uh, the disparities that exist, but to develop interventions to reduce and hopefully eliminate them uh, when possible. Doctor, I'm a health reporter. I'm looking constantly at health studies and reading about outcomes of drugs, interventions. What should I be looking for? What should readers be looking for to understand whether candidates in, in these trials were sufficiently diverse, whether there has been a commitment to diversity in medical research? We've made huge progress. First of all, it starts by categorizing and making sure people are measuring things the same way, because if you don't, then we don't know what we're looking at. NIH uh, has adhered to this since 1993. And uh, for the most part, uh, all research projects with humans, uh, which is about half of the NIH portfolio, uh, are obligated to report in a table what their recruitment targets are and who they've recruited by gender, race, ethnicity, and location. Um, uh, the uh, Food and Drug Administration, I think, has now implemented systems that will do the same thing. Uh, previously, uh, the, the category of being Hispanic or Latino was not systematically collected. And now, since about 2017, we have systematic collection of this information. So we can see if you're doing a study, let's say a new heart failure drug, and only 5% uh, of the participants were African-American, and yet we know that that disease disproportionately affects that population, and this is just an example, um, then uh, do, do we really call to task the industry to say, well, you should have a more diverse sample, or we call to task the scientists to say they have a more diverse sample. I, I think that the experience we had in the summer of 2020 with the uh, COVID-19 vaccine trial was really uh, an, an example of this uh, and, and the way that we were able to move the needle to have Moderna and other companies to diversify their study sample so that, so that it mimicked or it reflected the general U.S. population. Well, let's actually park on that COVID-19 vaccine trial a bit because it did get attention and this concern that the trials didn't reflect the populations that were potentially being affected by COVID or would stand to gain from the vaccine. So in your mind, doctor, was this just as business as usual, not enough focus on diversity up front and then it was corrected? Or was there something unique about the COVID-19 vaccine trials that led concern to emerge about the diversity uh, within? Well, I have to say that under the leadership of Dr. Francis Collins and Dr. Tony Fauci, uh, and the U.S. government actually was subsidizing these vaccine developments. Uh, and Moderna had used and collaborated closely with uh, NIH scientists. Um, and Dr. Collins said, we had to talk about what we're going to do about diversity. When, when the initial recruitment was laid out, it was a website. You went on, you, you registered, you were, you were referred to um, one of the clinical research uh, organizations that were recruiting. And there were about 55 across the country. So quite widespread. Um, uh, however, we know that people of, let's say, less uh, advanced education, people of racial and ethnic minorities are less likely to passively uh, go to a website and volunteer for these kind of things. We need different uh, approaches, different outreaches. 
Uh, and uh, Dr. Collins called myself, Dr. Gary Gibbons from the National Heart, Lung, Blood Institute and other NIH experts, including Dr. Fauci uh, and other vaccine experts with uh, what was then called Operation War Speed, the Moderna leadership. And we met every Saturday morning uh, for about three months to monitor their progress. And we gave them advice. We couldn't tell them what to do, but we gave them advice. And, uh, and Moderna listened. Uh, they paused their recruitment. They focused on targeted uh, samples of African-Americans, uh, Latino, Hispanics, uh, who were underrepresented in the initial recruitment uh, numbers. And they reached uh, a, an adequate number of participations. So 37% of their trial participants were from uh, racial and ethnic minorities. And I think this was a, a good representation. So we could go out and tell the American people, uh, we tested this vaccine in a broad spectrum of the population, people like you, and it worked. It worked in everybody. And I think this was uh, a huge, a huge uh, win uh, for NIH science and, and, and a credit to the Moderna leadership for adapting uh, to, uh, to uh, their recruitment. And this followed other companies doing the same thing. So I think that um, it is a lesson uh, for future recruitment that you need community at the table to promote uh, these research so we can address misinformation and get people uh, to, uh, to participate. So one question I have though, doctor, you just described an extraordinary effort of leaders in the national institutes taking time out of their Saturdays, really focusing in on Moderna and, and these trials, but there are trials going on constantly for things that aren't COVID-19 vaccines and are much, uh, much lower profile. Would you say that 50% of trials, 80% of trials right now don't have that commitment to diversity that you were able to secure with the COVID-19 vaccine trials. Would you be able to benchmark how, how broad a problem this might be? This has been a challenge uh, for you know literally the last 30 years, right? So since we became aware and what, you know, say, why is it important, let's say, to have diversity? Let me start with that, because I think that's the first question really that we ought to ask ourselves. Um, the first one would be, well, the population looks like this. If we have studies that don't look like the population, what's the credibility, number one? The second is social justice. I mean, uh, a lot of times the racial and ethnic minorities have been disenfranchised. They have been left out of having access to the best therapies for a variety of complex reasons. And we're making progress in that. But, uh, but this is a, a reason to say, well, we are counting you in. There's also a history of misuse, uh, the Tuskegee experiment was an example. There are others uh, that looked at Puerto Rican women uh, in birth control studies. There were the issues with American Indians in, in, uh, in, uh, in the Southwest uh, regarding their, their, their land and, and, and uh, access to water. Uh, so I think that uh, this is a social justice issue, but there's also science to be left behind. The discovery of a, a new potent drug for cholesterol lowering was because an African-American family was found by a, a brilliant uh, geneticist in, in, uh, in Texas uh, to have extremely low levels of LDL. Uh, and she went about systematically doing the studies to identify what was the, the, the cause of this. And then a drug was developed to diminish to uh, lower cholesterol on that basis. That would never have been possible if one did not have uh, a race ethnic lens uh, to, to uh, these pharmacological therapies. Now, we've come a long ways. I think that um, NIH, for example, about over 30% uh, 
of our uh, participants in human studies and a higher proportion in randomized trials are from racial and ethnic uh, groups that are not white. Uh, in the FDA, this is now reported systematically because uh, Hispanic Latinos were added to the reports in 2017 and we are able to monitor that. Um, there is an emphasis on looking at uh, if you're doing a drug for diabetes, it should include a lot of people from racial and ethnic minorities because most of them are, many, many of them have diabetes. If you're doing a drug for, let's say, cystic fibrosis, it's predominantly whites, although not exclusively, and then maybe the, the focus should be tailored on, 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 these, uh, on these aspects. And um, the scientists at FDA, uh, which is the regulatory agency, as you know, have made that known so that the industry uh, is aware of this and is systematically collecting this information. And so going forward, I think we'll see better and, and more progress in this uh, from a, a national perspective. I don't have, I don't think we have done an analysis or anyone has done analysis, what has industry uh, response been, uh, but I think we're reaching a point soon where this could be done in terms of new drugs being proposed for approval uh, through the FDA. I can tell you that the NIH constantly is reviewing this uh, as part of routine uh, work that our science, funded scientists do. I wanted to make sure to ask a few questions about the pandemic. And, and to do that, let's first pivot to some breaking news this morning. The Washington Post is reporting, or reported first at least, that the Biden administration will invest an additional $785 million into efforts to combat COVID in underrepresented communities. Doctor, $785 million, how necessary are those new funds or is that just a drop in the bucket? Well, all funds count. Um, I think we have made uh, enormous progress and I think we're, we're at another pivot in the pandemic uh, that is worth reflecting on. Um, from the beginning, uh, the NIH received special appropriations to develop the rapid acceleration for diagnostics a program that developed these tests through uh, incredible work done uh, with uh, companies and the NIH scientists. Uh, we also started a program for underserved populations uh, that re received an allocation of $500 million from Dr. Collins when, when this appropriation was made. Uh, and we have funded, at this point, 85 projects. They all have to be community engaged, is to promote testing, uh, we also have an important component on return to school, which has happened, and now we want to test to stay in school. Um, uh, we still see the data coming out of the CDC uh, as we, or any of the others who report data on COVID reports, almost 50% of new cases, you know, somewhere between 45 and 50% are from racial and ethnic minority groups, predominantly African-American, Latino, uh, and then a significant number of American Indian, Alaska Native, and Pacific Islanders, although they're very small populations. Uh, they're overrepresented in cases. Uh, severity, hospitalization, and mortality follows in parallel. Uh, and uh, vaccination rates, we're lagging behind, although we have, at least as of September, similar rates across those three main racial uh, ethnic minority groups uh, black, white, and uh, Latino Hispanics are the same per the Kaiser Family Foundation survey. So we're pleased about that progress, but we cannot let our guard down. Uh, these, these individuals are more likely to work uh, in public-facing jobs. They don't have the privilege that I do of uh, staying home most of the time and working from uh, and, uh, having my home office here. Um, uh, they're also in more crowded uh, parts of uh, living in more crowded urban uh, parts of the city. Uh, they're also living sometimes two or three families in one household. 
Uh, and so the likelihood of being sheltering in place or, or staying away or not being infected goes down. Um, I think vaccination has got to be the answer. Uh, we're, we're getting there, we're, we're made huge progress. Um, and uh, now that we're, the reason I say pivot is because we're, we're gonna have oral therapy available uh, pretty soon uh, for early onset of symptoms. And that will make it much easier uh, to treat people uh, early on to prevent further transmission uh, and individuals who have broken through and gotten infected even though they've been fully vaccinated. So we cannot let our guard down on this pandemic. This is not over by any stretch of the imagination. And just to pick up on that point that you made, we're moving to a world where there might be more therapeutics. The Pfizer drug, the Merck drug have gotten some attention as treatments. Are you worried at all, doctor, that there's a reprise of what we saw with the COVID vaccine trials? Is there enough of a commitment to diversity of candidates for these new pills that may be coming soon? Frankly, I haven't seen the data on the diversity of their of their studies. Uh, we were not involved, uh, and I, at least I, I haven't been involved or in any of that, but I expect that they uh, have learned their lesson and they will not be uh, they will be testing this in a broad uh, swath of the population. Uh, the, the the resistance to getting the vaccine is an interesting one. I, I have to say I I could not have predicted it, but I don't think many people did. Uh, we thought, oh, we we get a great vaccine and it works wonderful. People will come and run running to get it. Well, that didn't quite happen that way, um, and uh, that maybe is the biggest lesson of one of the biggest lessons of all from this process. We really need to focus on communication communication science and effectiveness. Uh, and as NIH scientists, we've learned that and we need to get ahead of that as we as we embark on new approaches. I suspect that taking a pill for five days or 10 days will be more palatable to many of the people who have not wanted to get vaccinated uh, than getting a vaccine uh, for, for a variety of reasons. So we shall see as these be, get uh, approved, hopefully, and, uh, and uh, distributed. Doctor, in our last question, about 45 seconds, I'm curious what you think the takeaway lesson has been of the past year and a half for getting ready for the next public health crisis, specifically around medical research, diversity of medical trials. Is there something that can be baked in to avoid some of the challenges that you've described that have plagued the health system this past year and a half? Clearly, the government, the federal resources moving in unison can have a big impact. And I think that we, we have to give credit where that happened in 2020. NIH, FDA, Operational Wars, CDC, everybody trying to move in the same direction. That was critical. Having a stronger public health infrastructure is really important in communication, in dissemination, in collecting data. This, is really, this really will give us answers. And paying attention to health disparities and the underlying factors, including uh, the, the challenges of uh, discrimination and racism historically uh, and structural ones uh, are really also important lessons from this. Uh, we have the tools to do discovery scientifically. We have the wealth to be able to implement many of these uh, ideas and many of these discoveries. Uh, what we sometimes have lacked is the political will, honestly, and also um, the ability to work together to, to get our message across. But um, I'm, I'm an optimist, uh, if you haven't uh, been able to tell. So I think we're, we've learned lessons and uh, we will do better going forward. 
Well, I may be a cynical uh, reporter, but we will leave it on that optimistic note. Thank you so much, Dr. Eliseo Perez Estable for your time today. It was a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. And to our audience, I will be back in just a few minutes with our next panel. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Elise Labatt of American University, and today we're talking about the importance of inclusivity in medical research, race, ethnicity, age, sex, environment, and socioeconomic status can all impact how different people respond to the same medicine or vaccine. To talk about why inclusivity starting at the earliest phases of research is so important, I'm joined by Dr. Aida Haptazian. She's the chief medical officer at Pfizer. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Elise. It's nice to be here. Now, we know the COVID-19 pandemic shed a new light on the these stark disparities in health equity for patients, not just here in the U.S., but globally, and that we need to address them. So, so how can research and the medical community reduce these disparities for patients? We know that poor diversity in early and late stage medical research is a major threat to health equity. And for far too long, research has not included diverse population and has failed to engage stakeholders from underrepresented racial groups, further perpetuating existing health inequities and adding to the widespread disparities that have become particularly apparent during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ensuring diversity in R&D is a key component of helping to achieve health equity and reducing disparities in healthcare. Race, ethnicity, age, sex, environment, and social determinants of health, as you mentioned, can all impact how different people respond to the same medicine or vaccine. And this is why inclusivity starting at the earliest phase of research is so important. The more diverse we can make every stage of research process from ideation to implementation, the more we can learn about the safety and efficacy of potential medicine or vaccine for people who have characteristics like those of participants. A majority of increase in the U.S. population in recent years, like increases in other countries around the globe, have come from people of color. It is incredibly important for the healthcare community to make changes by taking the following steps. First, health inequity must be declared a pandemic and public health threat unto itself. Second, we need to prioritize the diseases that are not only more prevalent in racial and marginalized populations, but are ones that are also highest disparity in outcomes. Third, we must align our research and clinical teams towards focusing on health inequities throughout the research process. And finally, we must address the lack of people of color in genetic research because excluding blacks and other underrepresented population from genomic study is hindering our understanding of disease drivers in all populations. Well, I'm glad you brought up the talent pool because I know you joined Pfizer just in the, earlier this year in the middle of the pandemic as a physician from Stanford. And you're, you were in academia, you were in clinical research, now you moved to the R&D side. And I know you've often said that your patients don't only teach you to be a better physician, but they also teach you to be a better scientist. So talk to us about how you've been able to take those insights, as you like to say, from the bedside to the bench. Uh, thanks, Elise, again. Um, I was at a stage, at in, uh, stage in my career where my attention was shifting to focus more on unmet needs and gaps in medicine with the desire to strengthen the link between bench to bedside and bedside to bench 
relationships, which is also known as translational research, and it's something that I'm very passionate about. There are certainly gaps in applying scientific knowledge to diseases and inefficiencies in recognizing unmet clinical needs that ought to inform fundamental research discoveries. So when this opportunity came about, I saw it as a chance of a lifetime to stop to step out of my comfort zone and bring my experience, expertise and skills uh, from academia to industry. And industry is well equipped at bringing breakthrough medicines to patients and Pfizer has the ability to reach uh, millions of people globally. So in this role, I'll be able to make an impact far beyond what I was doing in my lab, uh, my clinic and in my own um, practice, uh, patient practice. So this is the next phase in my career with a chance to contribute significantly in how we deliver uh, care um, and translate uh, our science. And throughout my career, I've been very passionate about addressing inequities in healthcare. And one of Pfizer's core values is equity and the belief that every person deserves to be seen, heard and cared for. And this happens to uh, be also when we are inclusive and reduce um, healthcare disparities. Um, these were uh, things that really spoke to me and I felt that Pfizer's uh, values aligned with my own. You know, I think a lot of doctors have, have felt this way during the pandemic that they're you know, practicing medicine, but they want to deal with, with some of these um, bigger issues. And I think when people consider health equity, they often think of sort of the end game of e equality, right, which is access to care. But I know Pfizer just launched a new initiative on this uh, translational research to create a more equitable and inclusive R&D process and pipeline. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes, so this Institute of uh, what we call Institute of Translational Equitable Medicine or ITEM is that uh, a way to achieve health equity by preventing, treating and identifying disease drivers that disproportionately impact underserved and minority populations nationally and globally. We believe there are gaps in applying scientific knowledge to diseases and inefficiencies, as I mentioned, in, recognized, um, in recognizing unmet clinical needs that need to inform our fundamental research. So we will use science and data to help us understand the drivers of health inequities and how our scientific discoveries can meet the needs of underrepresented and minority patients. Because of that, uh, the Institute's initiatives will span three key dimensions, research, development, and medical activities, leveraging science, data, translational expertise to help us uh, close gaps in, in health uh, disparities. ITEM will strive to integrate equity across our end-to-end -end development pipeline by delivering on the following key objectives, directing our research to understand root cause of the disparities, identifying new targets of diseases that are inclusive of underrepresented minority for the benefit of all patients or populations, and amplifying precision medicine by including uh, minorities and identifying root causes of disparities, collaborating with colleagues across Pfizer to enhance um, key initiatives focused on patient centricity, health equity, and social determinants of health, and importantly also to engaging and partnering with the communities that are most impacted by uh, inequity. In the drive to achieve health equity, there's always more work to be done, but we are passionate about embedding equity at the very beginning of our R&D process and every step along the way. Dr. Aida Haptazian, Chief Medical Officer at Pfizer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, it's a pleasure indeed. And now, back to Washington Post Live.
Welcome back. I'm Dan Diamond. My next two guests are Dr. Consuelo Wilkins, Senior Vice President and Senior Associate Dean for Health Equity and Inclusive Excellence at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and Dr. Carol Oladele, Director of Research at the Equity Research and Innovation Center at Yale School of Medicine. A warm welcome to you both. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Oladele, let's start with you. People may not know this. How have researchers who are looking to build a clinical trial, how have they historically recruited participants for those trials? What role or lack of role have women and people of color played in those? Well, traditionally, um, women and people of color were not included um, or specifically targeted for participation in clinical trials. Um, however, there current day, we have statutes that mandate the inclusion of women and people of color in clinical trials um, because it's important to make to ensure that there's efficacy um, for treatments um, in in these populations. And so there have been a um, you know increasing efforts and initiatives to increase um, the diversity of clinical trials to include women, women and people of color. Dr. Wilkins, our last panelist, spoke about the challenge in recruiting uh, folks to try vaccines. How do researchers like you better engage communities of color and underrepresented populations in participating in these critical trials and in research? Yeah, I think the key actually is to have a relationship with the communities before it's time to invite them to participate in research. You know, there's there's a lot of interest and focus on, you know, what is happening at the time of the pandemic, as, as we're discussing. There's no proven effective drug or treatment for COVID-19 initially. So it was more important than ever that we actually have individuals from these backgrounds that are most actually impacted by COVID in the studies. But it's nearly impossible to do that if you don't actually have relationships partners in the communities and understanding of the barriers to participating in research and actually some strategies, including people from these communities on your team to, to actually get them involved in the research at the time of the research. I find this sometimes as a reporter, you can't just show up the day that you need someone to talk to you for the story. You have to build that relationship over time. And then thinking about time and the time horizon, Dr. Oladele, how do you assess the progress that has been made these past few decades in making trials and research more diverse? How are we doing as a country? Well, overall, we um, the data show us that um, people of color are still underrepresented in clinical trials. Um, about 5% of clinical trial participants um, are folks who identify as people of color. So I think there's still a lot of room um, for improvement there. Um, you know, just to um, uh, expand on something Dr. Wilkins just said, um, you know, thinking about strategies um, and having those relationships prior to the, you know, um, designing and executing a clinical trial, um, making sure uh, community stakeholders are there at the inception when you're designing and thinking about um, how to implement and execute that clinical trial. Um, are all things that are important. So still lots of room to grow. Um, and thinking about, um, you know, ways that we can 
um, revamp how trials are sort of designed, thinking about things like where trials trial sites are located. Are they located within communities, um, which would decrease um, some access barriers? Um, thinking about uh, providing um, uh, services and, and, and um, resources to support the participation um, in clinical trials um, from underrepresented groups. I want to follow up on something you just said, Doctor. You talked about the community stakeholders who should be at the table at the beginning. What does it mean uh, by when when you say stakeholders? Are these civic leaders? Or are these just average folks who stand to be affected? I think it's important to have both um, present. Um, you know, community stakeholders, um, absolutely. But then, even average members of the of your community, those are the folks who. You know, uh, investigators will be reaching out to and trying to recruit for participation in their trial. Um, so I do think it's important to have um, both. So you know, community leaders, um, members of the, the wide community um, involved at the at the beginning at the design phase. Dr. Wilkins, you mentioned the pandemic uh, in your answer a few minutes ago. I'm curious what impact you think the pandemic had on what we've been discussing. Did the scientific and medical community Reevaluate their approach to the makeup of trials and research. Has there been a fundamental shift? I think it remains to be seen whether or not there's been a fundamental shift. But I, I, I do believe that the pandemic has, you know, shown this light on these, you know, very wide disparities enough that investigators um, really recognize how pivotal it is that they are more inclusive. Uh, in their trials, and they have to be more strategic about how to engage uh, people from populations that have been underrepresented in research. I think a key missing factor, though, for this really fundamental change is that we're still uh, considering this lack of participation in clinical trials to be more about some deficit in these communities, that this deficit mindset about you know, how people need to be better educated or um, there, there's a focus on access and that is really important, but we still seem to be missing this point that, that for many years, um, people have been excluded from research. So they've been purposefully left out of research except for the kinds of research that was done um, without consent, the kinds of research that was done when uh, no one else wanted to be, you know, um, the group of, of, of subjects who were really subjected to things like creating, you know, new tools like speculums for gynecological exams. You know, there's a lot of, you know, more data like that being uncovered that, you know, women who have been enslaved were the ones who served as the, uh, the, the subjects that were uh, tested. But then, uh, the device was tested on, but then when it was actually approved and available for use, um, these women were then left out of uh, the benefits. So, so we have to really reckon with what we've done as a research enterprise and, and a healthcare system to purposefully exclude and marginalize people. And now what are we doing to actually be more trustworthy? How are we, again, not blaming people for not trusting, but saying, you know, are we trustworthy enough uh, for people to want to participate in our trials? Well, I have to imagine that there are folks watching this who do want their organizations to do better and do want to better engage 
a diverse population in, in a trial. So how does that work? What is a specific tactic, Dr. Oladele? Is there something that you're doing? You're walking into parts of New Haven and trying to make yourself known to folks in the community. Is there a tactic that can be replicated? Would love if you could just walk through a specific example. So I, I actually don't do clinical trials, um, but um, um, I'll go back to the the importance of sort of engaging the community at the design stage, um, addressing challenges to clinical trial participation, such as lack of transportation, some some real practical issues, right? So lack of transportation, for example, um, lost wages. A lot of times um, underrepresented communities um, work hourly jobs and are unable to participate um, because of maybe the, the, the time period that the, the trial sites are open. So making those types of adjustments um, and being strategic in those ways, maybe providing um, childcare, a meal after if someone's coming from work to participate um, in your trial, um, you know, supporting supporting them um, in a way that would better facilitate um, them, you know, participating in, in the trial. And I think, you know, um, part of part of it is that, you know, they people of color have been systematically excluded from from research for many years. And and yes, now you know, um, there's a, a a push to sort of increase diversity. Um, I think there's also this, um, you know, a lack of appreciation for those who are willing and are interested in participating, um, yet are not asked um, or approached approach to participate um, in, in these trials. So I think that's something else we need to keep in mind in thinking about um, strategies to identify individuals who um, meet eligibility criteria. Um, and I think part of that is, you know, taking another look at sort of the data we have available on race, ethnicity, and language, um, and making sure those data are systematically collected, and they're collected in a rigorous way that would better facilitate identification of, of these populations for inclusion in trials. Dr. Wilkins, I think I have a similar question for you. Is there something that you've done or that your team has done to specifically boost uh, diverse participation in trials and research? So we spend a lot of time thinking about how to bring the voice of the community into the research. And, and, and Dr. Oladelli has talked about this uh, um, in a few points, but you know, how are we actually engaging people initially in the design of the research so that the actual process of an implementation is more relevant? It's considering these barriers um, that she's also pointed out uh, and, and, and including some facilitators. So, you know, are we being um, thoughtful in how we bring people to the table, not just to check a box, but th there has to be evidence that our research has changed in some way after we engage communities. So that means that, you know, our, our uh, engagement equals a change in the recruitment strategy and the design and the measures, the metrics, and I think a really important piece of that also is what do we give back to the community? So we actually have you know, developed this framework called return of value. So what information from the research process, uh, how we use data, in addition to the overall study findings that we're giving back to the community so with, that they know how they contributed, what it means, 
and how they can actually act on that. And that's really um, something that we've heard over time from our community partners is that you all come into the community, you convince us to be a part of your research, and then we don't hear anything. And maybe you send us a copy of your medical journal article that we can't really read or understand. Uh, so, so what does that look like? And then we also are trying to be really strategic in, again, understanding what are the assets in the community that we are underappreciating. You know, people, especially those who've been disadvantaged and marginalized, often have a lot of resources. That they're resourceful in general as people that we don't know how to, how to include and understand uh, what that looks like in the academic setting. So again, how can we tap into that, value it, and pay them, compensate them for their time, uh, and if there are any new skills that they might actually gain by collaborating with us, we'll want to also leave that in the community. You know, I've, I've written about Cleveland Clinic, a world-class hospital that's surrounded by a community that felt like the clinic and its research was a world away. So yes, these are, are real issues persisting all across America. In the time that we have, I wanted to shift to some questions about the pandemic and specifically about the disparities we've seen in outcomes. African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans were more affected by COVID-19 at higher rates than whites and Asians, both in terms of infections, but also deaths. I'm curious, Dr. Wilkins, why do you think that is? Well, I think the uh, historical evidence would um, say that we should have been expecting this. You know, there the data about pandemics, including you know influenza, have disproportionately impacted groups that have been uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged and marginalized. So um, again, we should have been expecting that people who are living in communities where the household density is higher, people who are working jobs uh, that are you know. Um, hourly wage earning, lower wage earning, need to be you know, in the grocery store, in the meat packing plants, uh, people who have to travel on the bus, like all of these um, things that we know are increasing the likelihood that people are, are exposed to the virus uh, are disproportionately seen in individuals who are African-American or Black, Hispanic, Latino, um, American Indian, these are populations, again, that we already know this about those groups. So we should not have been surprised. I think the unfortunate piece is, with this is that because these socioeconomic uh, factors, these social drivers, these you know um, downward effects of racism uh, and structural inequities um, are in the setting of the pandemic, people will jump to the conclusion that there must be some genetic or biological reason that we're seeing in this disparities. And so um, in, instead of really focusing on these social and environmental factors that are predisposing people, uh, there's this false narrative being, being created that something is biologically different about people and thus um, these disparities or inequities um, don't have it, actually any solutions. So, you know, the solutions are really in how do we address these social determinants of health, these long-term um, factors that really shape uh, individual health. Dr. Oladele, I know that social determinants of health is something that you've focused on quite a bit. I'm curious if you think that the pandemic has changed 
the way that we think about health equity, if it has prompted reconsideration of any of the challenges that Dr. Wilkins just laid out? I think it has. Um, I would say that there's a an increased um, focus on health equity now um, because of the pandemic, which highlighted long existing uh, disparities um, that exist uh, among people of color. Um, so yeah, I, I do think there's an increased um, uh, focus. Um, I think there's also an increased focus on looking with looking within our systems. So looking at systems, um, a variety of a variety of societal systems. So you know our education system, our healthcare system, and really really reevaluating policies, practices, norms um, with an equity lens in order to embed equity in those systems. Um, so there's more of that happening right now. Um, we have a lot of room to grow um, in terms of embedding equity in, in all our societal systems. Um, but there has been sort of, uh, you know, the, the needle has moved um, on efforts to, to, to address and, and focus on um, inequities. So we're getting near the end, maybe in our last question, Dr. Wilkins, I think I'm going to ask this to you and you have about a minute or more. Life expectancy in the United States has fallen. It fell by one year in the first half of 2020. And the life expectancy gap between whites and blacks, it had been narrowing. Now it's at six years. That's the widest that gap has been since 1998. How do we turn this around? Well, I do think that we have to consider uh, when we're delivering health care, when we're uh, doing research, um, thinking about disparities um, first. So, you know, I, I, I talk a lot, at least among my team, about you know, the need for right to left thinking. You know, if we are looking forward to closing that gap, then our strategies need to really be powerful enough, sustained enough to lead to that change. If we continue with these, you know, incremental and marginal steps, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that we're not going to close those gaps. We have to actually think about why are we now seeing these gaps widen? You know, how has the pandemic indirectly impacted these social terms of health, more people unemployed, the um, educational gap that we're going to see among children who are in you know, marginalized and disinvested communities. We have to actually um, have a bolus of funds, resources, support for all of these if we have any chance of closing uh, this gap anytime soon. So we really need to focus on the what's the end point uh, and work backwards. And we see it's not working, we gotta change those strategies sooner rather than later. After all the attention of the past year and a half on this issue, are you more or less optimistic than you were, Dr. Oladele? More or less optimistic about closing the gap? Yes, about addressing these issues. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a tad optimistic. Um, I would say I'm an optimist by nature. Um, you know, when I think about closing the gap and addressing the social determinants of health, I think about all the, the more upstream factors, right? So again, I mentioned embedding equity in sort of all our societal um, systems, um, because when we address the upstream factors and address things like social 
and economic um, inequities, those are the things that give rise to um, disparities in those social determinants, right? So housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, you know, lack of quality education and lack of, you know, quality healthcare. Um, so I, I, I'm, a, I'm a tad optimistic, but, um, you know, I'd love to see sort of increased efforts, right, in, in all our societal um, systems um, to focus on equity and embedding equity so that, you know, the downstream things that we know lead to these social determinants um, can improve. And then, you know, Dr. Wilkins talked about what's the what's the end goal, right, um, is is for us to see a decrease in the disparities um, that we currently see with those social determinants. Well, we will grab onto that shred of optimism with the awareness that a lot more work needs to be done. Thank you both, Dr. Wilkins, Dr. Oladele, for taking time to share your insights with the Washington Post live audience. It was a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.